Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in Acts chapter 20. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, or as always, it's printed in your in your bulletin. Last summer, those of you uh, know that we went to Washington, D.C. to take one of our daughters to college. And for the very first time, we're able to go to the National Gallery of Art. How many of you have been to the National Gallery before? It's incredible. Uh, a lot of it was shut down because of COVID, but we were able you know, to still see you know, masterpieces galore. And one of the pieces of art that I, um, I say genres of art that I'm, I'm most drawn to are portraits. I really, um, I find portraits fascinating. You know, the, the greatest, most legendary portrait in art history certainly is the Mona Lisa. Right behind it, though, is what's called the Mona Lisa of the North. It's uh, Johannes Vermeer's, um, uh, what is it, girl with a, a pearl earring? Is that how? Is it? Yeah, it's a picture of his daughter. I'll describe it to you if you don't immediately recognize it. She's sitting there with a, a bluish golden turban on her head. And she's Anglo. She's um, set against a very dark backdrop and looking over her left shoulder with a, a dangling per, pearl earring. Uh, the reason I mention this is because every time I see a portrait, I, I have um, I, almost a silly question that goes through my mind, and that is, how long did they have to sit there while their where their while their likeness was being de- depicted? You know, uh, how long does that take? The Mona Lisa reportedly it took. Da Vinci, uh, four years to complete it. I mean, surely <laughs> the Italian princess who sat for that, you know, wasn't that long. Um, but I really, th- I think it has all the makings of a comedy sketch. Imagine, you know, Italian Renaissance virtuoso Da Vinci is commi- commissioned to paint a modern American family, you know, with all of our ADD and our, all of our inability to sit still. As I mean, those of us who have young children, you know how Impossible it is to get all your young kids together for simply a family photo. <laughs> you know, just the, the click of a button. Imagine having to sit still long enough for a family portrait. I mean, how did they do that in the 17th, 18th, you know, early 19th centuries? It sounds inconceivable to us because we can't, we can't keep ourselves still. We certainly can't keep our kids still. Well, there's another person in the book of Acts who has a difficult time sitting still. And his name is, you probably guessed it, none other than the Apostle Paul. Paul in Acts, especially because the narrative is very compressed, it's just going from thing to thing to thing to thing. I mean, he is this whirling dervish of activity, isn't he? You know, he is planting this church and going to this city and getting on this boat and getting thrown into this prison. And he's almost murdered by this group of people. It's just one thing after another after another. You wonder, does Paul ever sit still? Um, if da Vinci was painting his portrait, would he say, Piantala! Cut it out! <laughs> Be still! Yes, he, he, he does, only when he says his goodbyes. It's when he says his goodbyes. Acts 20 gives us a, a wonderfully unique portrait of Paul. Here he is sitting still. He's quiet and reflective. He's not argumentative. He's, he's saying his goodbyes to the elders in this, that were uh, the elders of the church in Ephesus. I mean, here's Paul near the end of his ministry, a ministry that had swept through the Roman Empire in a blaze of glory. There's no mention of that from his lips. There's no hint of triumphalism. This, this picture of leadership we get here is, I hope to unpack it in the sermon, so very different than 
the kind of leadership that is you know, de- depicted in American society today. Uh, he's, just, he's very reflective, vulnerable, meditative, and humble. And so that's what we're going to look at. A distinctively Christian portrait of leadership that healthy Christianity ought to be producing. It's a ministry, I'm going to call it a ministry of truth, a ministry of tears, in a ministry of suffering. I won't get to the third point um, and spend, I won't have much time to spend on, on it, but we need more of that, don't we? And if churches are a reflection of their leadership, which I believe they usually are, we, we need more of that in our leaders. We need more of that in our churches. If Christianity is going to spread in the Western world again, it's only by, it's only by embodying you know, more of this in the coming days. Acts 20, I think it's verse 13, no, 17. We read, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots, through the plots of the Jews. Now I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I say, pay pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You you yourselves know that that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive which, you know, incidentally, what book of the, the Bible or what gospel is that recorded in? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? It's not. <laughs> this is one of the sayings of Jesus that is not recorded in the gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We do thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this great word. And um, I pray that the parts of it that I'm able to touch on this morning would be 
you know, blessed by the Holy Spirit, and it would minister to um, all of us as each has a need. Show us your grace and show us Christ in these pages. And all God's people said, amen. Truth, tears, suffering. Uh, Christians don't say, they certainly shouldn't say, we have the truth, now, now we're better than everyone else. Or, and I know the truth, you know, aren't I really great? Maybe some truth will do that to you, but not this particular kind of truth. The truth that Paul is focusing on is simply the truth that we have been rescued by Jesus. <laughs> it's the truth of grace. We are the kind of people who needed to be rescued by Jesus. I want you to notice how many times he talks about grace in this final address to these elders. Verse 21, um, I, preached, I preached to you about repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 24, I testified to you about the gospel of grace. 25, I proclaimed to you the kingdom of God. 27, I taught you the whole counsel of God. And for 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Grace, gospel, faith, kingdom. That's the message, friends. Like from cover to cover, the message of the Bible is Jesus and his grace. And I think that the, the, the greatest, one of the greatest dangers we have the longer we go through the Christian life is we get, I don't know, wrapped around different axles, different theological axles, and we miss the forest from the trees. We get, we get wrapped around an individual tree. We fail to recognize that this is the thing that should get you out of bed on Sunday morning and make you want to go to church. This is the thing that should make you want to read your Bible and pray. Grace is the truth to celebrate. It is. Amen? And when you discover that God's regard for you, that his love and, and delight in you is not predicated on your performance— it, it, is, it does not depend on whether you have a good day or a bad day or a good week or a bad week or a good year or a bad year. It, he loves you as much now as he will a billion years from now uh, because he loves you in Christ. And the, it seems to me the deeper and deeper grace goes into your soul, the healthier, like your Christianity, the healthier you become. Um, it's... It's grace that makes Christianity worth celebrating. It's, make it, it's what makes it wonderful. And one of the ways it takes us off of the spectrum of pride and self-loathing, um, all of us know the experience when, when we're successful in pretty much any area of life, like all of us have this tendency to just, it goes to our heads, doesn't it? You know, we start to, I don't know, we start to strut, we start to puff out our chest a little bit more, and we inevitably have a level of contempt towards people who, who haven't done it, who, who don't get it. Well, grace kills our pride because it's not about performance. Uh, on the same token, um, it kills our self-loathing. We fail so repeatedly in this life. Uh, and all of us know how we berate ourselves of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm stupid, I'm worthless. Just the deep self-loathing, that chronic experience of beating ourselves up and we don't, you know, meet our own expectations and our performances. But if if the grand narrative of the Bible and of all of the universe is the narrative about the king and what the king has done and not what we have done, um, you know, it's his performance and not ours. We can face our disappointments and our successes knowing, knowing simply that our value is not performative. And again, the deeper that goes into your soul, um, just the healthier, more joyful you become. Um, you know, truth, 
the truth that we really want to celebrate is the truth of grace. That's where I wanted to start. What does a passage tell us about Christian leadership? If you look at verse 17, I was listening to one pastor, another pastor, Charles Garland, talk about it this week, how in Christianity, leadership is not given just to a single individual. No, because we don't trust power in Christianity. We don't place it in the hands of a single individual. Uh, We put it into the hands of a plurality of elders. And if you know anything um, about the Greek here, the word for elder is pre- it's basically Presbyterian. That's how we get uh, the, the name of our church. Leadership is given to a plurality of elders. Why? Because power affects human beings badly. And I'd go so far as to say that power affects religious human beings especially so. Because what we can do, what we see often happening in the Bible, is people acting in an authoritarian manner, and then, um, and then baptizing it under the guise of their own religious piety, excusing bad behavior under the screen of piety. Yeah, I was, I was heavy-handed, but it was because I'm on the side of truth. I mean, you've heard that before. Or yeah, I may have come across kind of smug and arrogant, but did you hear how the, the bad guys spoke? Um, And this happens again and again. Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, you know, false prophets. It happens again and again. Authoritarianism in religious circles. Um, I, I have a huge aversion towards authoritarianism. And you know, the, the primary way that authoritarianism arises either in a society or is in a church is what? Is fear. It's when people are afraid. When people are just worried about tomorrow and they don't, Things are unstable, and, and they don't know what's going to happen, and there's threats of the known, and the, especially the unknown. Authoritarian people rise up to fill in the vacuum. And the same thing happens in churches. When people are afraid, they want somebody who has all the answers. And usually that somebody will come to you packaged in a very demonstrative, uh, forceful, strong, charismatic personality who is happy to stick it to the man and, um, and you know, and... And that's the type of stuff that scares me to death. Verse 17, the ministry of truth is not given to a single individual. It's given to a plurality of elders who, in verse 18, stress the need to lead in weakness. Um, That's the distinctively uh, Christian way of doing leadership. It is verse 18. Paul says, Yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and, and with tears and with trials because of what happened to me through the plots of the Jews. It's like, who does that? Who leads like that? Like, who of our political class over in Washington puts their weakest foot forward in the national spotlight? Who leads with weak? Nobody, right? Not a single one of them does. I mean, the only guys that do that that I can think of are, are Jesus and Paul. It's really curious that if you go back to the Greco-Roman um, culture that they were operating in, this word humility, that was not considered a character uh, strength. That was a detriment. Like to be humble was to be weak. To be weak is to be be, you know, walked over. It's to be, you know, you're going to be run roughshod over. And if you haven't noticed, some things don't change. That's the way it is today. That's the way 
Um, it is with, you know, many of our leaders in America today. You don't lead in humility and weakness. Certainly you don't lead in tears. The picture fills out even more in verses 20 and 21. You might think that leading in humility makes you afraid to speak truth. Uh, it might make you conflict-averse. Paul says, no, no. No, um, I did not, he says in 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, to shrink, what is that? Give me that, uh, the image of, of to shrink. It's to cower. It's to be afraid to speak the hard word. Paul says, I, I was willing to have the hard conversations with everyone uh, in public and in private, house to house, in the marketplace, insiders and out- outsiders, Jews and Greeks, with everyone. I was not afraid to have the hard conversations with you. On one hand, you know, we live in probably the most individualistic society, maybe in the history of the world, who basically everybody thinks that no one is able to tell me what to do. <laughs> that's, and that's not healthy, is it? I mean, it's impossible, it's impossible to have communal bonds that way. At the same time, we also live in a society where we have seen a lot of spiritually abusive church leaders through the years rise up with very heavy-handed authoritarian behavior. And of course, that is not healthy. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of people leave the church. They become de-churched because they have sat under leadership that has been, that's been cruel and hard on them. That's not healthy. What is the middle way that the Bible stresses? The middle way uh, is uh, our shepherds, elders who are shepherds. You know, a shepherd is a man who will lead. A shepherd is... Any earthly shepherd does not, you know, turn to the ewes in the flock and ask, um, where do you want to go to eat today? <laughs> you know, where do you, what pasture of clover sounds good to you? You know, a shepherd is going to lead his flock to the places where they're going to feed and rest. And he's going to protect them from poison. But he's, he's a shepherd. He's not a general. He's not going to lead harshly. He's going to lead tenderly. He's not barking out orders to soldiers. He's not a general. He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd who is able to to lead with um, tenderness and conviction. How does this happen inside the church? Lots of ways, one of which is healthy conflict. Elders must not be afraid of healthy conflict. They must not be afraid to say at least these three things to one another and to, uh, to, to the rest of us. That is number one, you are not behaving like Jesus. Christians do not like to be told that. You're not behaving like Jesus. There's hardly anybody who, if you ever have a conversation like that with them, immediately say, oh, I agree. (laughs) You're not behaving like Jesus. Or number two, you're not following the teachings of Jesus. We don't like that. Or number three, and this is one that I think happens with way more frequency than we'd like to admit. You have lost the priorities of Jesus. You've lost the priorities of Jesus. I'll let you in a little secret on the personality profile of those who go into pastoral ministry. Most of us are not on a power trip. We, we don't 
like want to tell other people what to do with their lives. At least that's, if you were to see my 16 PF, my 16 personality factors that I took for church planner assessment this week, you would see that that's, that's not part of my DNA. I actually, I don't like that aspect of, um, of being a pastor. We go into pastoral ministry because we're people persons and we like people. <laughs> and we also like to be liked by people. <laughs> And therefore, when you like to be liked by people, you tend to be conflict-averse. And yet the picture here of Paul and what we see in the ministry of Jesus is, no, um, minor moments of healthy conflict help avoid massive moments of division later on. And the same thing happens in marriage, doesn't it? If you, if you never talk about the things your spouse does that bothers you, one day you're going to end up blowing up at them, and, and you both leave the conversation hurt and angry. You know, many blow-ups in our own personal relationships and in the church can be avoided if we would just have these minor, difficult conversations and have them earlier rather than, you know, the really bad one later. And that is the responsibility of elders. How might, moving on, how might the ministry of truth happen outside the church with those who are not Christians? And we just read how Paul spoke profitable truth in public and house to house to insiders and outsiders. What I would say is this. In every culture, there are aspects of Christianity which do not play well in that culture. There are hard edges to Christianity which people are going to hear and, and be like, ah, no thanks. Because it rubs, it rubs their cultural sensibilities the wrong way. And these differ from culture and culture. And it's actually a very good thing. Because when, we're, when we acknowledge this, we're recognizing that Christianity is not the product of a single culture. There's not a single culture in the world where all of the Christian message, we're like, yes, 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 yes. No, there's going to be yes, yes, no. But they will differ from culture to culture. As an example, take a Middle Eastern culture. Um, if you just say to somebody in the Middle East that part of your responsibility is to hate your father, mother, sister, and brother, and then come and follow me, a Middle Eastern man uh, in Turkey or, or um, you know, a Syrian refugee in Turkey is going to look at you and, and be like, what? Hate my father and mother? Father and mother and clan and all of that is, is an ultimate value in those cultures. And they, that will be, when you are talking to a Muslim man in, in Turkey, like one of the reasons why he's like, I don't want to sign up for this. It's a hard edge. Likewise, if you go in, into this Southeast Asia, into a more shame and honor culture, and you tell them, okay, you must forgive your enemies, even if your enemies have not asked for forgiveness, again, they're going to be like, no way. That, it's... Because shame and honor are a deep, intrinsic cultural value. Those are hard edges. Those aren't really quite as hard edges in American culture. Where are the hard edges for us? How about this? How about personal identity? Personal identity is one of the most um, disputed matters in our culture. I think we would agree. And our cultural narrative tells us, here is the way you determine your identity. You look within yourself and to your desires, primarily to your sexual desires, because we're a very Freudian culture, aren't we? Look at your sexual desires to determine who you are. In essence, our cultural narrative is all identities are self-determined. You, you look through the conflicting, 
Oftentimes they tell you to do this in adolescence, which doesn't make any sense to me, but you're conflicting sexual adolescent desires, and you're like, oh, well, that's who I am, as if, like, that makes any sense ever. Um, but all identities are self-created, and therefore anybody who questions your, your self-determined identity is in our narrative, doing violence against you because they're questioning your very existence. Um, how do we speak truth to that? Winsomely, how do we speak the truth in love to that? Well, one of the ways we could is by saying, why do you think that's the best way to understand identity? Don't you realize that that is a very Western and individualistic, and, and honestly, it's actually a very Anglo, it's a very white way of understanding identity. As one author puts it, in most of the non-Western world, identity is communal. Identity is communal. People don't get to define themselves without respect to others. Identity is negotiated within the community. And and really, self-esteem and self-worth are all very communal. It, It all has to do with your fulfilling your duties to the family or duties to God, whatever God, or duties to others, rather than satisfying your own internal self-interests and self-desires. So when the therapist tells you, um, as they probably will, don't let anyone, don't let anyone tell you who you are. You decide who you are. Ironically, at that very moment, he or she is imposing a very individualistic Western and white way of understanding identity. How do you know that that's really the best one? Um, so yeah, we push back in that way. You know, in Christianity, identity, it's wonderful. Identity is something that we don't have to go out and achieve. Identity is something that's received. <laughs> it is, it, identity is received like an act of grace. Um, identity is discovering ourselves wonderfully made imago Dei in the image of our creator and wonderfully accepted by God in his son, Jesus Christ. And when you have that kind of identity, it, as I said earlier, it takes enormous pressure off your shoulders. You don't have the pre- pressure to perform. Your value is not performative. But the But to think that the best way to discover your identity is to look inside at your changing and contradictory inner feelings and have no standard by which to determine, is that really my true self or is that my false self? The only standard that that is given to the modern self is just, well, whatever you want it to be. Um, No, there's a better way. There, There is a better way to determine these things. But here's the thing, church. You'll never be able to have that conversation with someone if you don't have the second element of the portrait, which is tears, or aka friendship. You will never be able to have that conversation over the internet. (laughs) Note to everyone, you can't do it in a cyber community. It can only be done in the context of friendship, of relationship, of love. It means that we have to have friendships with Christians and non-Christians, doesn't it? To be able to speak those words? Yes. So let's look at the second element. And, you know, there's so much more I could have said about truth, but we'll move on to tears. Yeah, Paul stresses the, the ministry of truth, but, it, but it's a ministry of truth in humility, as I said, in weakness, in embracing. If you look at verse 37, you know how these men, or verse 36, they kneel down, they pray, they're weeping, they're, they're hugging each other, they're kissing each other. These are grown men 
who are falling into each other's arms, like in a non-erotic manner, just just loving each other. These are men who have opened their hearts to one another. These are men who are in deep spiritual friendships with one another. And, And I'm a big believer. The primary way to do discipleship is through spiritual friendships. Um, it might surprise you. It's, it's not a dirty little secret, but it is a, a bit of a secret that when you go to seminary, some of your seminary professors tell you this. They say, don't have close friendships in the church. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but uh, don't have close friendships in the church. Um, pastor, parishioner dynamics are complicated and they're messy. And we, I understand the reason they give that advice. You want to try and protect a guy's heart from just you know, the crushing sadness of broken friendships that occur in the church. And um, that's the hardest part, I think, maybe is the hardest part of being a Christian in America today is, I mean, we just have friendships that go boom, 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 boom. They break so frequently um, in the church. I'll ask you this question. How many of you who have been a Christian more than 10 years, would you say that you have had at least five friendships, people you got close to, that just evaporated in church um, sometime thereafter. How many of you have had at least five? How many of you have had 10? How many of you have had 15? Yeah, Shulton's like, I've had 60. <laughs> but it's true. It's like, you know, relationship, friendships in the church, it, ah, it's, it's so hard because church nowadays, it's just a transactional cost-benefit analysis like if I'm getting my needs met and if the elders have a mask policy I agree with or, or a mask policy or um, a social distance policy that I agree with, I'm in. And if they don't, I'm out. And it's just so transactional. Uh, and, um, and so seminary professors are trying to protect pastors from, from having their hearts broken as, as elders can express um, happens with some frequency. If you've ever experienced this, I want you to be reminded of what Paul, uh, what, not Paul, but C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves, these wonderful, amazing words, if you love anything, your heart will be wrung. If you love anything, it'll most likely be broken. If you want to make sure to keep your heart intact, then wrap it up in bubble wrap uh, and uh, wrap it with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin in that safe, dark, motionless, airless place. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. It will become impenetrable. And it will become irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable, he says. And it, it stinks that so many friendships have been broken in the church. But I guess in a world of sin, is there any other way? Is there any other way? I want to say a specific word to those of you who are older. Um, I think that friendships, friendships become a problem with age. The older you get, the more people that let you down, the more people that hurt you, the more people who disappoint you. Uh, and the older you get, the more you know about how much work friendship takes. I, it's a it's a big investment to have a friend with someone else. And what I've noticed is a subtle shift can take place. Very seldom will a Christian say, I don't, I don't need friends anymore. Um, but this subtle temptation happens, especially in the lives of older people, as they're like, no, 
I'm not going to invest in one of those anymore. No, I just lost a friendship. I'm not going to make a new one. As they start pulling back from that vulnerability. And do you know why this is so easy to do? In addition to the fact that we just bear scars and we're hurt. But do you know why friendship uniquely is one that we can pull back from? It's because friendship is the only form of love that will not push itself on you for the most part. Um, Every other kind of love besides friend love will push itself on you. Romantic love. How is that pushed on you? Through your hormones. Family love, how is that pushed on you? Well, by family obligations. Uh, Citizen love, how is that pushed on you? By your country. Friendship love, nobody will force that on you because there's no biological or sociological necessity. Friendship love is the only one that you have to choose. You have to choose it. You have to share your time and your heart and your life with someone. You have to choose You have to choose to be like Jesus in this way, right? This is, you have to choose to do the dangerous work of being like Jesus. Yeah, the guy who spent all of his waking hours with 12 other friends. The guy who every day lived alongside, ate with, served, self-disclosed with 12 disciples, plus a cadre of other women, Mary, Martha, Mary Magdalene. And even more deeply with an inner circle of friends who really saw into his soul. Peter, James, and John. You have to choose to be like Jesus. Did those people ever um, let him down? (laughs) Did those people ever fail him? And did he ever withdraw? Did he ever fundamentally and completely withdraw? This is a warning for all of us. If you don't need people, if you're afraid of accountability with people, if you're afraid to have other people look inside of you, um, Do you realize the less you need friends, the less you are like God in that way? It's true. The less you need friends, the less you are like God in that way. It's especially a hard word for some of you older men to hear because the truth is you don't have any any close older friends. Um, The less you need friends, the less you have friends, the less you are like God in that way. And as I said, I believe we need friendships with Christians and with people who are not yet Christians. Let me say one more thing. I'm running out of time. Um, Let me say something about quarantine in the last 18 months. What pastors have noticed all across the country is we have watched Christians dive deeper and deeper into a fully online existence. There are many people who have spent the last 18 months largely devoid of meaningful relationships. And instead, they have, they have retreated into an online echo chamber of ideology, politics, and theology, which is poison to their souls. I mean, there's so much bad stuff on the internet. Uh, and you know, there's plenty of studies out there that indicate the, the more, there's a correlation between the amount of time you spend in social media and online chats and online, the correlation between that and a noticeable lack of empathy like your empathy levels go way down because you stop to re- you st- you no longer understand what it means to walk a mile in another man's shoes because that other man's shoes might be a, a jillion miles away from you. It's on the other side of the cyber world. It's not it's not sitting across the table from from you for coffee, is it? And so we we actually have been retreating into these echo chambers of non-relational living. 
Uh, and we, we've got whatever is our big issue going on. It's politics, it's ideology, it's theology. I can't tell you. We've all seen this as pastors, the number of theological watchdogs that have arisen over the last 18 months who are, you know, their, their dander is up on this issue or that issue or that issue. And there are all these like national issues. It's not, it has nothing to do with actual, with actual local community itself. Am I right, elders? It's all about, you know, this guy over there said that and this guy over there. It's not about conversations we're having. It's not about life in this community together. And yet you've got these theological watchdogs whose who's, the hackles on the back of their neck are, are raised. It's poison, friends. It's poison. And what we really, what we desperately need, what we, what we need are two men crying together. You know, two men who have so shared their lives together that there's just this, this radical openness. Um, don't lose the forest from the trees. Christianity is about making disciples who are experiencing the power of the gospel in every area of their life and who are bringing the wonders of the kingdom of heaven, the mercy, justice, faithfulness, and grace of the kingdom into every area in society. The internet will not tell you that. <laughs> it won't. It'll, it'll get you wrapped around a tree. Um, but don't lose the forest from the trees. Elders, brothers, don't let this congregation lose the forest from the trees. I want to say one word to you guys, and I wish I had more time to say it, but verse 28, to all of the elders here, brothers, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his blood. I'll just say amen to that. Careful attention to yourselves. Careful attention to the flock. They were all bought with the blood of the king. Care for them. Amen. I'm not done with the sermon though. (laughs) Yeah, and then he goes on. I don't have time really to talk about the suffering he experienced. Um, Verse 23 you know, or 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And verse 24 is the craziest thing that you'll hear today. It's the, it's the statement that you can never sell in our culture. Want to look at it? 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There are a million people on Instagram right now who um, are begging to be told that their lives are of value and that they can consider themselves precious. Um, Our photos on Instagram are a plea to that end. There are a million people whose number one priority in life is their life, is to go on living, is to keep on living and make it through with as little suffering as possible. What is the priority for the Apostle Paul? It is simply that people would know, (laughs) that they would know the gospel of grace, that they would know grace, that they they would know Jesus. And he said, that is what makes um, my my life worth living. And that is what I hope makes uh, your life worth living. Um, Let me conclude. I wish I had more time to talk about suffering. Have you ever been in a church 
uh, it's usually in older churches in the East Coast or in the South, where they have pictures of the pastors, the former pastors, somewhere in the hallways of the church. Have you ever been in one of those before? Please, once you guys build a building out there, don't do that to me. (laughs) Don't put mine in, in, yeah, please don't do that. Imagine the hallway of the church of Ephesus. It starts out with a picture of the Apostle Paul. He is followed by Timothy. And there was false teachers that rose up and he warns against. And if you read First and Second Timothy, that was, Timothy had to protect the church from false teaching. Uh, he was followed by Timothy. And then after Timothy, do you know who else came next? It was John the Apostle. And he brought with him, at least according to, to church tradition, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So maybe she gets her picture there too. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the fourth pastor of the church of Ephesus? Like, oh man, I feel bad for that guy. What kind of chance did he have? What's so cool about Ephesus is they had a, a difficult time with false teaching, but they, they went on a 400-year run. So by the late 4th century, there is actually an all-Christianity council that takes place in Ephesus. They had 400 years of fruitful life there in that city. When you think about it, I mean, a church that has even 50 years of life, you had, you, you had a good run if you had 50 years. I'd be thrilled if all saints like, had a great 50 or 60. Um, I hope you have 400. <laughs> but... Yeah, that's what happened by virtue of a ministry that was, you know, planting this church with truth and with tears and with suffering. When you stop and stare at the portrait of Paul in that hallway, do you know what he, who he resembles? Do you know what he looks like? He looks like Jesus, who also was traveling to Jerusalem, where he knew that he would meet a, a fateful end. And Paul has said, I am traveling to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit has told me that terrible things will happen to me. Um, he is headed to Jerusalem to suffer. With most of the leaders you see on TV these days, you get the distinct feeling that they will do anything to stay in power, right? And here you have the two preeminent leaders of Christianity who intentionally are headed to Jerusalem where they will lose everything. That's real leadership. (laughs) That's real leadership. Um, Paul was willing to give up his life for his churches. What I hope you'll do in response to this sermon is, if you've never done so before, discover the gospel of grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Um, Grace is the thing that makes this religion wonderful. Um, For the elders, I hope you guys heard some of your marching orders. And especially as you guys think about who's ever going to succeed me and the next pastor, that you'll find a guy who's, who's all about truth and tears and suffering. And then finally, to all of the rest of the congregation, I just hope that, um, that you will make the difficult decision to pursue spiritual friendships in this congregation. Um, and uh, wherever you are at on that spectrum, you would do the risky and essential thing to, to make your heart vulnerable. Because that's what it means to love. Amen.